it's a really interesting one to go through and it's kind of overlooked because 108 their ruling came out so quickly afterwards that it's kind of like takes a bit of the wowness away from it you're listening to australia's podcast for accountants tax talks the podcast to grow your firm episode 345 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. We already mentioned the Guardian case in our discussions of the Section 100A ATO publications in episode 339 and 340. But today, let's look closer at this case with Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne and discuss what exactly this case was about and on what elements the ATO lost. If you have overseas clients deriving income in Australia, please listen to this episode and see how income was channeled through a company saving substantial amounts of tax and the taxpayer won. The Guardian case doesn't talk about adult children, has nothing to do with adult children. It's more in the context of what the ATO call a washing machine arrangement. But it does add to the jurisprudence, which is quite limited anyway, on the remit of Section 100A. And it is worthwhile noting that the ATO lost on three different elements of 100A in, in that case, as determined by Justice Logan. So they only needed, the taxpayer only needed to win on one of those, but they had three things that they could rely on that um, meant that Section 100A did not apply in the opinion of the federal court. And those three elements are? The three elements that the taxpayer uh, won on is worth perhaps just, just explaining what the facts of Guardian are very briefly. In essence, we have a discretionary trust, which had a number of income sources, some of which included property that it owned, so rental income. We had the controller of the group and we had a bucket company that was owned by the trust. So three players, trust, company owned by the trust and individual. Over a period of three years, each year the trust had income and it resolved that some of that income, the company would be made presently entitled to some of that income. And it's around about $2 million each year. The company itself later declared a dividend back to the trust. In that following year where the trust has the dividend, what the trust did is it streamed that dividend to the individual and the rest of the income in the trust went to the company. So. It's not a pure washing machine back and forward type arrangement, but what's happened is income from rental sources mainly has come into the trust. And instead of the trust resolving to pay that money to the individual, it's paid it to the company. And then the next year, the company's declared a dividend back to the trust. The trust is then sent it on to the individual. So the trust pays two million to the company, let's say in 2020, and the company then pays six hundred thousand dollars of. Is that right? No. Yes, the company pays six hundred thousand dollars of tax, 
and then the company pays 1.4 million plus 600,000 dollars of franking credits to the individual. And so nothing is really different because now the individual includes 2 million dollars in their accessible income. It's taxed at their marginal tax rate. They get a tax credit of $600,000, but those $600,000 had already been paid and then they just pay top-up tax. So in the end, tax is paid as it would have been paid if the trust had distributed directly to the individual in my mind, or am I wrong? Where is the uh, tax avoidance that the ATO is not happy about? That's an excellent question. Subject to what I'm about to say, the only difference is a timing difference in the year in which the income is derived, because of course, the top up tax would be paid the year after. Correct. So the trust distributed in 2020. So the uh, bucket company pays the $600,000 of tax in 2020. It then distributes to the individual in 2021. And then the individual pays the top up tax sometime after the 30th of June, 2021. Whereas yeah. if it had been distributed directly, then the tax would have been paid in 2020. Good. So there is a deferral of one year, but it's not, it doesn't feel like a big deal to me. Well, that's not, that's what, not what I was about to say. So the difference is Mr. The, the individual controlling this was a resident of Vanuatu. Ah, it's okay. a non-resident. So essentially if the income was to go straight to the individual, it's income according to ordinary concepts and there's a full withholding on it. Yeah, now I can see the problem. Because if it had been distributed directly to him, he would have been taxed as a foreign resident on Australian sourced income at foreign resident tax rates. Whereas now that dividend is going overseas and hence... It, there's no withholding because it's a fully frank dividend. Correct. And so before he would have had to pay tax, if it had been distributed directly, he would have paid tax at foreign tax rates. And I assume they top out at 45%, whereas now he only pays 30% company tax rate. Yeah. Yeah. It's important to note that because I think that is at the heart of the case because the difference is rental income is converted into fully frank dividend and there is a big difference in the tax rate for a non-resident on those things if it was a resident you're absolutely right there isn't much difference between the, situ the situations anyway but because the individual is a non-resident that's where we get the big difference and hence the uh, interest in the case and andrew i can imagine this would be a very common scenario. I mean, I hadn't realized it until now, but I can imagine clever tax agents who work with a lot of overseas clients, they would have done that all the time, channel any income in Australia through a company and then your tax is kept at 30%. Yeah, it's common. Or even kept at 25% if you can argue that the company runs a business kept at 25%. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is not a unique situation. The the thing that might be a little bit more unique is that the, the, the bucket company is owned by the same trust and has to go back up the same way sort of came down. But you could easily imagine this is done with a bucket company that's owned by a different trust. So it's not going to the trust, to the company, back to the same trust. So it's definitely a um, not uncommon thing that's done. 
I agree with you. So we would have the same outcome and we would have the same criticism from the ATO if the bucket company was held by an associate and then the, the company would have distributed directly to the individual. Yeah. So the ATO levied assessments for three years at around uh, under both Section 100A and also Part 4A, and it also issued alternative assessments to multiple taxpayers on the same amount. Now, of course, they can't enforce multiple ones on the same amount, but they can issue them. And they applied a 50% penalty in respect of the 100A assessments to the amount as well. So what did, what did the ATO lose on? They lost on, firstly, they lost on the requirement that, that, that a reimbursement agreement exist at or before the time of the conferral of the present entitlement. So it's a basically the reimbursement agreement, if there was one, needs to exist at the time the trust makes whoever presently entitled to income. The court said that that was not made out. Yeah. But of course, that is very difficult for the ATO to prove, to prove that there was an intention to make a reimbursement at the time the trust made the distribution. But I thought the onus was on the taxpayer. So could the taxpayer show, you know, quite convincingly that there was no intention? The agreement, the quote-unquote agreement can be implied and it can be inferred through conduct. So it's not necessary that something in writing. And as you know, the taxpayers bear the onus of proof in uh, proving that an assessment is excessive. So in other words, the ATO alleges that there is an agreement entered into before the time of the present entitlement. It's on the taxpayer to prove otherwise, and they need to prove otherwise to the balance of probability. So they need to lead some sort of positive evidence that a court would accept that that is not the case. And that's exactly what happened in Guardian. The court accepted the evidence of the taxpayer that no one had that type of agreement at the time the present entitlement was entered into or was conferred, I should say. I'm quite impressed that they were able to convince the um, court of this. Do you know what evidence they brought into court? The individual behind it seems to have been grilled in the witness box and also their accountant also was grilled in the witness box. So, And they were accepted that both witnesses were honest, reliable, credible persons and all that. So I think that that definitely helped. I think it could have been different if uh, answers were inconsistent or things didn't add up or there was some documents that suggested something else. But, yeah, they accepted their evidence and that was enough to get over that hurdle. They did very well. So that's element one that they won on. So they said the court said, well, even if there was a reimbursement agreement, it wasn't, there wasn't one at the time the present entitlement was conferred. And the ATO do acknowledge this in the ruling released, and they do acknowledge that consistent with the decision in Guardian, the reimbursement agreement needs to exist before a present entitlement is conferred. Now, they then go on to say immediately after that the conduct of the parties before and after that time may be relevant to establishing the existence of an agreement. So they've acknowledged that it must exist before, 
but they say, well, conduct can infer whether or not that agreement exists. Now, in the case of Guardian, taxpayers were able to win and provide enough evidence that that wasn't the case. In some other case, it might be different. If they can show that in the first year there was no intention to reimburse the trust at the time the first distribution was made, if they can show that in the first year, but surely if they keep doing it year after year, surely in the second or the third year there would be an intention to reimburse the trust. Yes, yes. I mean, if things are done year on year, then it's more easy to make that finding. But didn't they do it for three years? Well, yeah, I was about to say, note that in this case, they did it for three years and the court accepted that it was basically ad hoc tax planning each time and you can't go back with hindsight and say, well, that must mean that there was an agreement in place. So they did it for three years and the court said there wasn't an agreement before the time of any of those present entitlements being conferred. I find that mind-boggling. Is this going to appeal? Or no, it went to it went all the way up to the high court, and hence there is no room to. No, it's it's a single court, single judge decision at the moment, so it is on appeal to the full federal court. Okay, I can imagine that the full federal court will decide differently, because I find this mind-boggling that you can do something for three years, and can argue that each time you had no intention of doing it again. Yeah, look, it will be interesting. I think the challenge is that when there's an appeal of a federal court decision, it must be an appeal on a question of law rather than a finding of fact. So generally, these type of thing would be a finding of fact rather than a question of law. So I'm not sure whether or not that's going to be overturned, but let's wait and see. I think everyone's holding their breaths waiting for the, waiting for the appeal of this case. Okay, so given that a lower court had decided the fact that there had been no intention of a reimbursement through all those three years, the uh, single court, uh, single federal court or the full federal court can't question that because that is a question of fact and not a question of law. Generally, yeah, there's, there's some grayness between the two categories, but yes, like it makes it quite difficult to do. Yeah, but if the uh, full federal court can't change that assumption, I think it will be difficult for them. But yeah, let's see. That was the first element they lost. Did you already explain the second one? No. So the second one was in order for 100A to apply, the purpose of the agreement must be the reduction of a liability of some person to income tax. So in other words, it's, it's this tax reduction purpose. So the, the purpose of the agreement needs to be to reduce someone's income tax. And what the court says and refers to a previous case called East Finchley is that this requires a hypothesis about what income tax would become payable if the reimbursement agreement had not been entered into. So it's kind of like a counterfactual. You need to say, well, how much tax, who would have paid tax in the case that this agreement, so on and so forth, was not entered into? Yes, and that is given because Mr. Vanuatu pays a lot less tax now than he, than he would have paid otherwise. 
in one sense, there is less tax paid, but the relevant part of that is the declaration of the dividend from the company. So what's required here is this counterfactual analysis. Well, what would have happened? What the ATO argued would have happened is that the trust pays the income directly to the individual rather than going to the company first. The taxpayer led evidence and it was accepted that they would not have done that. What they would have done is accumulate funds in the company because the individual was particularly concerned about asset protection. They were concerned about having wealth in their personal name. And so that was not something they would have done. They would have done something different. And of course, leaving the money in the company, it might in the future, but it doesn't at that point in time. So this is quite interesting because it basically means you can't go all the way back. You can only go down to the dividend. And so basically only compare the tax that has been paid on the dividend back to the trust or directly to the individual. So then, of course, there is no tax avoided because you can't look at the direct trust distribution. You can only look at dividends. Yeah, and Guardian, the taxpayer, they argued this by analogy to a case, quite a famous tax case called AXA, Asia Pacific Holdings and the Federal Commissioner of Taxation from 2009. This was a case where the taxpayer won on Part 4A because what they argued was the counterfactual proposed by the ATO would not have been done because there was too much tax to pay if they had done that. And this case led to changes in legislation for Part 4A. While the wording is slightly different between the two, the court accepted that they are pretty similar in what they're looking at and accepted that there was no, no one's tax was actually reduced. Now, I think it might seem a bit crazy in one sense because, you know, if we're just thinking about it more holistically, but the court accepted that and there's sort of this, this hypothetical counterfactual requirement about, okay, well, if this wasn't done, what, what would be done? So this is the second element, and that is very interesting. And then it basically means you can do this. You can basically wash any income you want, as long as the ultimate recipient of this money is overseas, rather than paying it directly, you just wash it basically through a company, and then you limit it to 25 or 30% of tax. Well, potentially. I mean, I think it's it's dangerous to draw too many far wide-reaching conclusions because a lot of it was based on the circumstances of this taxpayer. For example, they didn't need the money. They had plenty of other funds. They accepted that they were um, a good witness. There was real asset protection concerns. So there is danger in drawing that same conclusion for everyone else. But if, every, if, if they meet those same situation criteria as, as the taxpayer, then yes. Okay, and the third element? The third element is this talked about exclusion. So you can meet every other element of Section 100A, but if what is done is an ordinary commercial or family dealing or done in the course of an ordinary commercial or family dealing, then it is excluded and Section 100A cannot apply. In the context of the case, they said that the individual was concerned about asset protection at the time of the transactions happening. So that's why instead of distributing income to themselves personally, 
they chose to distribute money to a company that's owned by a trust. Now, those asset protection concerns didn't materialize in the sense of, well, they weren't sued later, they didn't go bankrupt. But what the court said was, well, you can't just use the benefit of hindsight to say that, oh, you know, there was nothing to be worried about at the time, for example. So they accepted that this was ordinary commercial or family dealing. They didn't really go too much further into that conclusion other than to say that that is something that's that's covered in in the exclusion what they did say was they they did give a little bit of explanation about the remit of that ordinary commercial or family dealing and it's interesting to go through it because i think there's a bit of a difference between what the ato has said in their ruling and what the court said in guardian and i think this will be fleshed out in the for federal court decision. So what the court said is the word ordinary in ordinary family dealing is used in contradistinction to extraordinary, basically saying, well, ordinary is the opposite of extraordinary. And that it refers to a dealing which contains no element of artificiality. So in other words, it's the opposite of what's, well, it's either extraordinary or ordinary, it seems. And ordinary is something that involves no element of artificiality. And they've referenced that the reason behind these provisions was to do with trust stripping. So that's part of the reason that the court took that interpretation. And just reject my memory, trust stripping is, is basically just distributing money to beneficiaries on lower tax rates, correct? Yeah, it's to do with why the section was brought in in the first place. There was It was basically bringing in charities and other low-income beneficiaries, just introducing them into the deed and then lumping them with, with, with accessible income that was never intended to be paid to them, but not in a family-type setting, in a more, you know, random person off the street-type setting. So trust stripping triggered Section 100A? Yes, yep. So court says ordinary is different to extraordinary and it's something that doesn't contain any element of artificiality. What the ATO says is that to be in the course of an ordinary dealing for the family part of it, an ordinary family dealing, the transactions between family members and their entities must be capable of explanation as achieving normal or regular family, familial or commercial ends. And that a dealing is not ordinary just because it's commonplace and that a dealing can fail to be an ordinary dealing even when it is not artificial. Yeah, and I think they have a good point because there doesn't seem to be any familial or commercial purpose to this backwards and forwards of funds. Other than saving tax. Yeah, well, I mean, the, in the Guardian case, there was the asset protection point around who's actually, who has the wealth. But the, the real interesting point is the ATO in their ruling has said, it's not ordinary just because it's commonplace and it can fail to be ordinary even if there's no artificiality to the arrangement. Whereas what the court said is that ordinary is the opposite of extraordinary and Ordinary refers to something containing no element of artificiality. So in my mind, there's a pretty big conflict between 
what the ATO said in their ruling and what the Guardian case has said. There's a footnote in the ruling that states that the ATO believes that the, the statements are consistent, but I'm not I'm not sure that's the case. But Olaf, I hear your cautionary words that you can't just rely on the Guardian case and then go your merry ways and think you have waterproof protection. But I still think it's a huge plus for tax agents and taxpayers who are constructing similar arrangements. Yeah, well, that's the difference for non-residents between capital gain from Australian property, which they get no 50% discount for whatsoever, a uh, capital gain from shares, which is entirely disregarded, uh, ordinary income, which is subject to the full rates, and frank dividends. There's, there's very different treatment for all of those things under the tax law. So far in the Guardian case, the money was rental income. Let, now let's assume it's a capital gain. But the bucket company wouldn't qualify for the 50% CGT discount either. So to basically do this structure now with a capital gain and still optimize it, you would have to distribute not to a bucket company, but to a, an Australian resident. Yeah, could you construct it somehow that Mr. Vanuatu still gets the 50% CGT discount and then still stays within 25% tax? Capital gains are a problem for non-residents if it's through an Australian discretionary trust, which was highlighted in the Greensill and Enna Martins Holdings case. If a capital gain is distributed from an Australian discretionary trust to a foreign resident, there is no disregarding the capital gain and it's essentially at the full rate and with no discount. If it's to an individual, then an Australian resident individual, then yes, they would get the discount. And if it's to a company and then declared as a dividend to a non-resident, then it would be taxed at 30% in the same way as it is in the Guardian case. So very different outcomes depending on what's done. Yes. So it's very hard to get the 50% CGT discount, I think, because you need the company to get to the 25% or 30% tax rate and Hence, you won't be able to get the uh, 50% CGT discounts. So the bottom line is basically, yes, you can use a bucket company to reduce your tax to 25% or 30%, but it is very hard to structure it in a way that you also get the 50% CGT discount. I can't see a way at the moment. Yeah, well, to take up that example further, I mean, if, if it's not taxable further to the non-resident, then it really doesn't really matter that much that they don't get the 50% discount because essentially they're getting a, a, a much lower rate than the non-resident tax rates would be anyway. So if it's 47% divided by two, that's 23 and a half. And if it's a company at 25, they're pretty close anyway. Yes, I agree. But what I had been thinking is both, you know, the 50% CGT discount and then the 25% tax rate. Mm. Trying to have your cake and eat it too. Nah, can't get can't get that much. <laughs> yes. So the Guardian case can will give you more confidence and more protection if you do use a company to stream income to a foreign resident, but it probably will not help you to get the fifty percent CGT discount. In the case of Guardian, which was a judgment handed down a little while before Section 100A ruling, uh, we had a taxpayer that, that did an arrangement over three years and resulted in quite a big tax benefit at the end to, to the individual concerned. The 
Taxpayer won on multiple elements, as in the ATO lost on those elements. And it's really important to be aware of not only the facts of that case, but the outcomes the court has uh, decided based on that, because these could apply to other instances where the ATO is trying to apply either Section 100A or Part 4A. To just summarise the three elements that the ATO lost on. So they lost on that the taxpayer was able to successfully argue that there was no reimbursement agreement at the time of distribution, even though it happened three times over three years. They were able to argue that there was no reimbursement agreement at any of these times. The second element they lost on was that the court decided that you can only look at the dividends. You can't go back to the original trust distribution. And then, of course, there is no tax saved if you only look at the dividends. And then the third element they lost on was that the court accepted that it is an ordinary commercial or family dealing. And I think the main point of contention was that the court argued that ordinary is anything that doesn't have an element of artificiality. And the ATO argued that even if something is not artificial, it might still not be ordinary if, it's ha if it ha basically has no purpose for family or commercial reasons. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good summary. And it's worth noting the case is on appeal. Uh, this is definitely not the final chapter in the Guardian saga. And it would be really, it's really, really looking forward to seeing what the full federal court says when, when that decision occurs. It's a really interesting one to go through and it's kind of overlooked because 108, that ruling came out so quickly afterwards that it's kind of like, takes a bit of But I think it's very important for us as tax agents not to overlook it. A, an idea of how to do it, and B, more certainty how we can be protected. Agree. Welcome back. So this is an important case to remember when you have overseas clients or entities, overseas entities, deriving income in Australia. In the next episode, episode 346, let's go back to section 100A one last time and answer your questions about section 100A, about the ATO publications about section 100A. It will be a section 100A Q&A with Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.